This is Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. Our goal is to amplify the voices of people of faith who are organizing for social, racial, environmental, and economic justice. Welcome back, everyone. This is another episode of Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast where we attempt to draw out themes of solidarity and justice and collective goodness in a world full of division and hatred and exploitation. No large task at all. Anyway, today's episode is a metabolized version of a webinar we held in January built around the one and only Jorg Rieger and his new book, Theology and the Capitalist Scene. He was joined by the incredible scholars Philippe Maya and Jason Moore. So check out the show notes for links to all of their bios and their writing, as well as a very affordable copy of Jorg's great new book, Theology in the Capital Scene. The following talk is organized around three main themes from Jorg's book. Uh, the first one is defining the capital scene. Second is the importance of class analysis. And finally, we end with a discussion on the intersectionality of all of these deeply related ideas. As well, after this great talk, we opened up for some Q&A with the audience and we had some wonderful conversations. So you can look forward to hearing all of that in an upcoming episode. So stay on the lookout for that. Without further ado, Jorg Rieger, Philippe Maya, and Jason Moore in a conversation about theology in the capital scene. Enjoy. I'm going to go ahead and read from Jorg's book. So if you have his book, this is going to be on page two. We find ourselves not in the geological age of the Anthropocene, when humanity as a whole asserts its power over everything but in the age of the capitalist scene, when the economic interests of a small and privileged group of humans rule both people and the planet. Philippe, what thoughts do you have for us? So I share uh, a vocation and a profession with York. I'm a theologian as well. So I'll begin with a word about the work of theology uh, and why it matters that we talk about theology in the capitalist scene. Um, I think, uh, the title of the book introduces theology to a particular context, right? That the, the work of doing theology means something different if we pay attention to where we are located. Uh, so it's common for people to think of theology as somehow assent to belief, right? As a certain way of saying yes to a certain doctrinal position uh, or ascribing belief in a higher power, to use a common expression there. So I want to play with words here and suggest that Jorg in this book and others is thinking of religion and theology perhaps as a way of engaging the lower powers of the world as they are struggling against the higher powers of the established order. So you see how religion here begins and the thought of religion begins elsewhere, begins in a different location. And I think Jorg is in this book helping us to think about what difference it makes for us if we start uh, our thinking about the divine, about what is sacred, about what is ultimate, paying attention to our geological age. The Capitolocene is a word that is difficult to pronounce, but it's one of those kind of profound concepts that help us perceive the reality around us. It's a word that suggests that capitalist exploitation and expansion shape the world according to its own image. 
Jorg is suggesting in this book that the capital scene has also given us its own image of God, its own images of the divine, right? That there is in this geological age of capitalist expansion, that there is an assumed understanding of what is ultimate, of what is good, of what is divine. So that is what this book is trying to do, is to think, to say a word about God in that particular context. Now, before we go on sort of fetishizing the word God or assuming and presuming that we know what it means, Jorg is bringing us back to earth all the time, right? This book is uh, bringing uh, God talk into the kind of depths of the capitalism, into the planetary crisis that we're now facing and the social ecological crisis that we are having to live together in this age of uh, of the capitalism. So against uh, those images of God that are presented and enforced upon us by the capitalism, you're is suggesting that there might be alternative ways of thinking about the divine, about ultimacy. If we, you know, track the moments of instability, the interruptions in the flow of power from the bottom, from the top down. Uh, and there might be different ways of thinking about religion, different ways of experiencing religious uh, experiences and living uh, communal aspects of the faith. If we are paying attention to those movements that are resisting the forces of the capitalism. And I'll say, I'll end this section here by suggesting that the theological argument of the book is that there might be something divine in those movements for liberation, in those movements that are interrupting the flow of power of the capitalism. Jason, and what thoughts do you have for us? Well, that was brilliant. Uh, this is a wonderful book. This is opening up a conversation, and I think that's how we want to look at understanding capitalism in the moment of its epical crisis, which is, of course, not driven by, but uh, certainly wrapped up in a fundamental way with the climate crisis, which has to be understood as more than simply an accumulation of greenhouse gas molecules, but the outcome of a very long historical uh, uh, process, all of which is to say that the capitalist scene is ultimately what they call a geopoetics, which means earth poetry. It's a geopoetic provocation to the common sense definition of the climate crisis today and its origins as anthropogenic, made by humans. The reality, as any socialist can tell you, is that human humanity in general does nothing. Uh, empires, classes, financial markets uh, uh, do make history. Classes, labor unions, peasant revolts make history. Humanity in the abstract doesn't. And so the capitalist scene as a wider thesis is very much in tune with where Yorga is, is asking us to think about especially in terms of the relations between domination and exploitation, and to understand how those fit together, and that they are not simply floating in the ether. They emerge out of specific class and imperial projects in the web of life. And just to maybe cap off this part of the conversation, the Capitalocene says that the origin that that we have to make sense of the origins of today's planetary crisis if we wish to develop the kinds of deep solidarity uh, that Yorga helps us think about these solidarities that are internationalist that are proletarian semi-proletarian but also I, I can't think of, of anything better than to quote Thomas Munzer the creatures must go free 
that capitalism sets in motion not only the work of human beings, but the unpaid work of extra human nature. And it's very much a system of power and domination that requires the unpaid work of humans and the rest of nature, the proletariat, the femitariat, and the biotariat. And without the kinds of deep solidarity that uh, Yorga is asking us to think about and to root that not just in the alienation of labor and land, but also the violent alienation of nature versus society and the kinds of spiritual alienations that go with that, uh, we'll be unable to forge the kind of anti-imperialist politics and internationalist politics of liberation in this moment. Thanks, Jason. Yorg? Uh, wow, yeah, thank you so much for these comments. This is really, really helpful. Um, thanks to Jason for uh, getting us into the history because this is ultimately about history. You know, these are not metaphysical arguments about eternal truths, but what's going on here, what's going on now. Uh, and for way too long, I think, um, well-meaning people have talked about the Anthropocene as if in geological history, humanity was not taken over, right? We had the Holocene, uh, sort of the emergence of uh, Homo sapiens since the Ice Age, the last 10,000 years. Now we have the Anthropocene, now Homo sapiens taken over. Uh, the truth is, uh, who's taken over is not 8 billion human beings, but... Uh, a system, uh, and of course, there are some people uh, related to that system, uh, but it's fairly clear who's losing and who's winning here. So, so that's the first thing. Uh, that history has to be identified, uh, not just in terms of humanity, but uh, I, I like uh, Jason's terms, the biotariot, right, the femitariot, um, productive labor, reproductive labor, all of that. Uh, in the theological argument of the book uh, later on, I actually go uh, to reclaim Paul Tillich's idea of Religion is about the ultimate concern. And I say the ultimate concern, uh, Tillich says, is that which is a matter of life and death, is actually uh, <laughs> about uh, production and labor, uh, reproductive labor first, uh, productive labor also. Uh, but without that, uh, there would be no life. There would be no only death, right? We would not be here without the gestational labor of our mothers. Uh, nature would not be uh, what it is. Uh, it's there due to its own labor, right? And so on and so forth. So, so those are some of the questions uh, in the historical perspective. Um, thanks to Philippe for really uh, getting us into the theology piece, because uh, as he is saying correctly, theology ultimately is a critical reflection. So this is not about uh, memorizing uh, somebody else's idea, uh, but thinking critically. And of course, uh, you know, at one level, I am a Christian theologian. And so uh, I think there's some uh, real helpful insights in Christianity, but you don't have to apply that to Christianity only. You know, it could be other uh, ways of thinking theologically, religiously, and so on. Um, one thing I like about uh, Christianity, though, and uh, let me put this out there because it may surprise a lot of people, is that the early Christians in the Roman Empire were actually accused by some established Roman philosophers of being atheists. Uh, and the Romans weren't dumb, you know, they they knew what they were saying. They were religiously tolerant. They could deal with all kinds of religions, but they could not deal with Christianity. And for the simple reason that this Christian divinity looked so different from all the other divinities, right? It wasn't a dominant top of the world kind of character, but a subaltern um, person who was ultimately uh, executed by the empire for political reasons. Uh, 
that didn't quite work uh, with dominant theology. And so the Romans were quite right. Uh, these early Christians were rejecting the dominant theism. So atheism here doesn't mean rejection, rejection of all gods, but of the dominant gods of the empire all the way back in the Roman Empire. Uh, and I think that's where we are again. You know, this is where our question is not, do you believe in God or not? Uh, but what are the gods of the empire? What are the gods of the capital of Zine, as Philippe already asked? Uh, and what might be the alternatives? Uh, that's where I want to go constructively. Uh, there's a lot of stuff uh, we should not and must not believe, uh, but there might be some interesting stuff happening in the cracks and between the lines. And, and that, I think, is the theology in the Capitalism Project. Uh, of course, uh, you're not necessarily um, stuck in the clouds now. Uh, you're feet on the ground, thinking on your feet or whatever you want to call that. Uh, but you're also realizing that this is bigger than us. This is not just a couple of well-meaning people trying to transform the world. Uh, this is really uh, deep and long and powerful forces in history that go against the current. While the capitalocene might feel that it has won, uh, and uh, sometimes they're worried about alternatives, but not so much. Uh, what we're saying is maybe there's something else going on, and if we pay attention to it, uh, we might get inspired. Let's go ahead and move on to class. I'm quoting here from Jorg's book on page 98. The increasingly unequal distribution of power at work for the sake of profit extraction profoundly shapes all of life in the 21st century, both human and non-human. The reason why the study of class is so crucial for the study of theology and religion is that class relationships bleed over into other relationships making them highly relevant for non-economic fields of study. Class relations have important implications for people's political agency, personal and communal relationships, relationships in religious communities, and even how theology, religion, and the world of ideas shape up. Um, Jason, let's, let's start with you. Class, dialectically understood, is not an economic category that goes in one box, and then there are other categories that go in, in other boxes. Class is a heuristic. Class is fundamental to a method that understands that these class relations are not simply to the relations uh, and forces of production, but also, as Yorgo was hinting at, to the relations of reproduction. That's fundamental to keep in mind. Now, on top of that, if we want to talk about capitalism in a meaningful way, we have to stop treating it like it's a social process that goes out into the world and imposes environmental consequences. It may look like that, but that in fact is a Malthusian and indeed 17th century worldview. In fact, and Marx and Engels, again, in the German ideology, socialists never read, Marxists never read the German ideology. So just go, go trust me, the first few pages, it'll be great. Uh, and what they're saying is class societies are always uh, sets of relations that unfold with and within webs of life. And so this class becomes what I call an environment-making relation. That is, it is not only a producer of changes in the webs of life, it's also a product of those changes. And when we think about what class does, it is ultimately a set of antagonisms that are premised on alienation between mental and, and mental labor and manual labor. And the violences that unfold through that, I think, are fundamental to understanding 
not just the political, but also the revolutionary spiritual priorities of uh, an internationalist movement to confront the forces of the climate dictatorship today. And so for me, class needs to be uh, treated not as a cookbook. It is a key uh, uh, under the leadership of, of revolutionary forces to overcome the spiritual and intellectual alienations uh, with and within webs of life that will be fundamental to the course forward in the climate crisis. I'll jump in. Uh, I think I have maybe two points, perhaps three, and then I'll end a question with a question for you, York. Uh, the, the two points is, I think uh, what this book allows us to say to, is twofold. First, that there is uh, an obvious avoidance of the topic of class, that there is a difficulty in naming it and talking about it in uh, certainly in academic circles, uh, but also in politics and um, social discourse in general. Uh, so there is a lack of language to talk about class. So that's the first point. The second point, uh, which I think is more insidious because it's more um, more subtle, is the fact that we have we lack good categories to talk about class publicly. The default position in class analysis is theories of stratification with income brackets. And then there are even more confusing uh, ways of talking about class that associate class with, with college education, as if you come to college, you graduate with a class. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that Jorg is saying is in this book that I think is very helpful is that this is a way of obscuring class because it enforces class power by making it very opaque. So instead, like York building on the socialist tradition is arguing uh, that class is about social relations of power, right? So it, it's not uh, a theory of strata within society, but ways in which people build power differently and how social structures shape power differently. I, I say this as a way of, kind of introducing the topic as it is presented in the book, but also as a way of shaping the question that is emerging, York, for you to think with us, which is uh, what difference does the capitalocene make for class analysis? Uh, because oftentimes class is thought of in terms of interhuman relation. And you were pointing in the direction that there's something about class that has a planetary dimension to it. So what is it about the capital of seeing that changes our perspectives into class? What are what you think about class solidarity and mobilization in the capital of scene uh, and in an environment that uh, is leading us to think about solidarity beyond interhuman relationships? I'll stop that with that question. Uh, let me just briefly respond uh, to, to both of you, starting with Philippe this time. Um, I mean, with this group, perhaps the basic insights uh, seem uh, maybe can be taken for granted uh, that class is not primarily a matter of stratification, but a matter of relationship. Now, that sounds very beautiful, and, and you can sort of uh, put that on a hallmark card, right? Uh, class is about relationship. Uh, of course, it's about relationships of tension. Um, but this is this is the bone of contention, right? Uh, as soon as you talk about class relationship of tension, uh, you come to a notion uh, called class struggle. And uh, most of my colleagues would assume, I think most academics probably would assume that if you're talking about class struggle, you're doing that because 
you write this term in Marx somewhere. You must be a Marxist. That's the only way to get uh, to this idea of class struggle. Uh, the reality, of course, is different, right? If you go to the grocery store tonight, uh, you talk to the person uh, who checks you out, uh, and you talk to them about uh, tensions and labor relations, they would tell you something about the reality of class struggle and how working people are actually treated, right? We call them essential workers, uh, but uh, the story is a different one. Uh, so it's it's those fundamental issues, uh, reclaiming those uh, in a conversation where class either is totally ignored or it is defined in sociological terms uh, that are certainly interesting to study. This is not a matter of uh, critiquing uh, people who study this work, but it's not directly at the heart of what we're talking about in the capitalist scene where we have this relationship uh, of ultimately exploitation, extraction. Uh, those are the two basic ones, right? Exploitation of labor, uh, extraction of uh, raw materials from non-human um, nature. So so uh, start there and, and think about uh, how does that shape us? Uh, and uh, all of a sudden, you might realize that that shapes us a lot more than we ever realized. And I think for Americans, this may be especially difficult to admit, uh, because we're, we're taught, you know, uh, we're all middle class, and the middle class uh, is beautiful. It's a safe space to be. Uh, there are a couple of poor people, there are a couple of rich people. We're not going to worry about them too much because the mass is middle class, and so we have class peace. Uh, the reality, of course, is uh, in this capitalist scene, uh, you see these relationships of exploitation. Uh, some of this uh, bubbles up from time to time, uh, bubbling up perhaps in um, the Occupy Wall Street movement most clearly in recent memory, right, that were uh, an understanding of we are the 99% came from the fact that uh, somebody else is benefiting, somebody else is winning, and the 99% are not as well off. Uh, and if you talk about the tension, uh, you have to talk about the tensions in the middle too. Uh, the middle class is not the safe space of peace and tranquility, but it is oftentimes one of the spaces where the battle is waged. Uh, you know, the middle manager, uh, the dean uh, at a university school, you know, uh, uh, department, uh, whatever, uh, those are not the ruling class. Uh, those are, of course, people that have some privilege, uh, but surprisingly little power. We, we can talk about that later. Uh, so, so those are some of the fundamental observations. Uh, they may be a little simplistic, but uh, they have to be simple because everyday people need to be able to understand them. And I would say uh, everyday people are understanding them a lot better than most of us, uh, certainly not uh, in the academy. Uh, the other problem is that uh, whenever you talk about class nowadays, uh, the suspicion is always that you're a class exclusionist or exclusivist, right? That you're the person who is basically not interested in race, uh, sexuality, gender, uh, you name it, uh, ethnicity, uh, and so on. Uh, that's, of course, not the case at all. I mean, that's not at all uh, what my project is trying to do. We'll talk about intersectionality in a minute, I believe. Uh, but that's one of the biggest reproaches. When you, when you even bring up the term uh, class, uh, you're sort of uh, already a dinosaur and you shouldn't do it. Uh, what we're doing here is uh, we're claim, uh, reclaiming this notion of class. And uh, again, uh, Jason has given us uh, some of the theoretical framework here. We're thinking about class, uh, labor as uh, as he calls it um creating um uh, environment creating right uh, not just relationships creating but really world creating so capitalocene class 
relationships, exploitations, uh, tensions in the capitalist scene are shaping everything. All the way down, uh, this is why religion is part of the conversation, because religion is not escaping of this, uh, but also all the way around us. Uh, so so uh, ecology, everything, you know, uh, billionaires now shooting rockets into space uh, for the purpose of basically controlling more and more uh, of, of what is reachable. So, so those are some of the fundamental principles. And uh, all we're doing at this point is simply making it clear to us that these things are happening. We're not even saying we have to wage class struggle or we have to fight really hard. We just have to say, Warren Buffett said it in 2006, there is class struggle and my class is winning it. Uh, Buffett said it several times in 2006. Uh, nobody took it very seriously uh, and it's not part of the capitalist mythology anymore. Uh, but that's, of course, the point, right? Uh, somebody is winning. Somebody is waging it. Uh, and uh, the first thing is, uh, let's wake up to it and, and let's see what it means. Uh, and of course, the next thing then is, uh, what do we do about it, right? How do we respond? How do we build alternatives uh, that are not merely, you know, this exasperation that we see these days, oftentimes on the left, where we're rightfully annoyed at what's going on. Uh, but because we may not have a deep enough analysis, uh, we think that speaking truth to power uh, is basically all we need to do uh, without ever thinking about how are we rebuilding power. Uh, and in order to do that, uh, you need that class analysis because it's ultimately part of a power analysis uh, without which you cannot analyze the powers that we're dealing with. It's, it's of course, not a sufficient one. Uh, that's the point of intersectionality. You still need to look at all kinds of other forms of exploitation, uh, extraction, and, and of course, then oppression. All right, we, we have a couple more minutes if you want to take some time to talk about class. And, uh, you know, you're, you're talking to a lot of DSA people, so um, class is near to, our, near to our struggles. Can we maybe fold that into the discussion on intersectionality think, and questions of dominance? I think that's a, that's a great segue. Yeah, absolutely. So how do all of these analyses fit together in the capitalist scene? You know, especially paying attention to the role of, of power and privilege. I want to read from York's book here. Um, this is on page three, so it's a little long, um, but it's really good, so maybe indulge me. Um, <laughs> the classic triad of gender, race, and class marks the place where all hands on deck are needed in theological efforts in the capitalist scene. Today, this triad must be broadened to include concerns along the lines of ethnicity, sexuality, nationality, and ecology. The horizon is not determined primarily by individual experiences and identities, but by global structures of exploitation, extraction, and oppression. In order to produce real alternatives, all of these elements need to be made to work together in complex interactions. Simply adding them up will not do, as multifaceted power is messy. With solidarities that match this complexity and messiness, sorry, without them, the best that we can hope for is individual forms of inclusion into the dominant system and some recognition of diversity, which may be preferable to exclu exclusion and forced homogeneity, but will hardly lead to systemic change and liberation. Jason, Philippe, what do you got? Okay, I'll start. Um, I just uh, want to emphasize a few points here um, and to begin the conversation, really. Uh, there is a common, I think, misunderstanding and sometimes oversimplification of theories of intersectionality that uh, suggests that 
the theory is basically adding categories, right? Of making your analysis include here is an, uh, a chapter or a paragraph or a sentence about race, a sentence about class, a sentence about gender. Uh, I think what the, the power of the theory is, as elaborated by people like Kimberly C Crenshaw, is to suggest actually the complexity of those systems of power and how they operate together. So how is it that uh, the category of class has been racialized in particular ways in history? How is it that issues, for, for example, of labor and production and reproduction have been gender in particular ways? So it's not a way of thinking of those categories in isolation, but the power of of the theory, and it's, I would say, the politics of the theory, really, is to think about those categories as they intersect, as they shape one another, right? So when you argue someone who is emphasizing class here, um, uh, you will see that this is not a book that is saying, if you don't pay attention to class, whatever you say about race and gender is insufficient. It's actually it's suggesting that whatever we say about class has a, uh, a power and a bearing over what we think about gender and race. In the same way, what we think about race impacts how we analyze class. So this is a kind of a, a, a broad uh, summary of the intervention in this book uh, that I want to affirm. Uh, it, this is a way of thinking about the depths of, an, uh, of systems of power uh, and how they, in their interlocking systems, uh, that would be the expression from, from Crenshaw, they impact us and shape us deeply. Uh, and I'll, uh, I'll end here this brief comment with a note on the work of theology, because Jorg, again, as a theologian, is thinking about how deep these structures of power go, right? So that is, uh, thinking intersectionally is a way of thinking how is it that our understandings of ultimacy, uh, to use, again, the language from Tillich, are shaped by those categories of race, gender, class. Uh, I, I, I re was recently rereading uh, the important book by Robert, uh, Robert D.G. Kelly on um, uh, Freedom Dreams, which is kind of a, a history of uh, black struggles of liberation in the United States, where when he goes back into history, there is the complex uh, entanglement between the labor movement and class relations in the United States. Right. Uh, so there is one version that he described as of the class-only analysis which would be exclusive, right? Um, but the other argument that he makes that I find it interesting is that oftentimes when people were emphasizing class or even the class-only analysis, they were doing so in a way that would say, because we start with class, we must be an all-encompassing movement that is racially inclusive. Uh, so there were several movements for labor movements in the earliest part of the 20th century that we're already having this kind of insight uh, that in order to, to be in true solidarity with one another in our labor, in our work environments, we also need to be in solidarity uh, with those who are oppressed by virtue of their race. And later on, movements would then, of course, speak of the importance of thinking about gender, sexuality, uh, and yes, to Clyde and Michelle here on issues of ability, um, and so I, I want to affirm your what what has been said in here, and I'll stop here for now, Jason. Well, I want to applaud Jorg for saying that class is actually the pivot through which exploitation and capital accumulation occurs. Uh, 
I, I, I think the spirit of, of, of synthesis that we're experimenting with is common. For me, intersectionality is deeply problematic. But the spirit of the synthesis in which we're engaged is, is uh, crucial. I think that intersectionality, uh, by and large, tends towards a democratic theory of causation that treats race, class, and gender as uh, both the same kind of phenomena, which I think is absolutely flawed, and uh, tends to erase history. One of the things that we want to make sense of, if we want to use uh, a con concept like the capitalist scene, is we have to understand that capitalism is not separate from climate crisis. Not only does, does capitalism emerge during a period of climate crisis, but through the slaving-induced genocides of the new world, it creates the conditions for uh, the worst of the Little Ice Age, which was the coldest of the last 8,000 years. Now, why am I telling you this in, in a discussion of intersectionality? Well, because the invention of modern forms of sexism and racism emerge out of this extraordinary crisis of, of the century and a half, roughly between 1550 and 1700, when there is this first great intense climate crisis, which was profoundly destabilizing to politics all across the world, all across uh, and including all across Europe. This is the era of the Civil War in England, of the Fronde in France, of political revolts uh, all across the world. Well, in this era was forged what I call the capitalogenic trinity of the climate class divide, climate apartheid, and climate patriarchy. These were formed, these, these forms of thoroughly modern uh, domination begin to, con to congeal, uh, to use one of Marx's famous verbs, during this period, both culturally and juridically. Modern racism and sexism are fundamentally products of bourgeois naturalism and the invention of nature as an absolutely bloody conceptual hammer of domination to do what? I mean, what makes why does capitalism keep forms of domination ar uh, around? Well, to advance the rate of profit and to accumulate capital without cease. And I think that's what's so often been been missed. So just to end uh, this rather impassioned statement, please don't boot me off the DSA call when I say that for me, I would link more closely to the communist tradition of Claudia Jones of super exploitation. But this, I mean, the major vehicle political organization of black, white, working class unity in this country was the Communist Party USA. Now, yeah, later there were all sorts of problems. Okay. But when we look at, this dynamic, it was premised on an argument that super exploitation and super profits are essentially fundamental to capitalism and about this, and therefore the anti-racist and anti-sexist struggles are class struggles. So that's where I would uh, uh, maybe end. Thanks, Jason. Could you could you say again the the what you called the holy trinity of modern exploitation? Could you say those so three? The, the climate class divide, climate patriarchy climate apartheid. Those are not the results of today's climate crisis. Those are the drivers of today's climate crisis, and they emerge all more or less in the same time. This is the era of Marxist primitive accumulation, which is also a gendered moment. Why? Because there's an underproduction of labor power. And this is also after 1570 with the commencement of the transatlantic slave trade, the emergence of slave societies, and slowly, gradually, the, the creation of, of color lines first in Northeastern Brazil and then in the colonies uh, from the Caribbean to the Carolinas. I'm itching to get in this. This is so great. I'm really enjoying this conversation. 
Um, and, and thanks to both of you for, for making all these, these important contributions and observations, because uh, sometimes in my shop, quite honestly, uh, and of course, uh, Philippe is also a theologian, so also we're in the same shop, but in our shop, uh, you know, uh, these conversations are not happening. And so so that they're happening here, I think, uh, is really helpful. And, and hopefully some something will flow back. Uh, not only in the field of theology, but also in the practice of religion, because that that ultimately, I think, is 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 one of the challenges that we can never forget in this country. I mean, we are finding ourselves in uh, one of uh, the more religious countries in the world, right? And of course, keep in mind here uh, in Nashville at Vanderbilt, we're in the southeast, so so religion is is even more important. Uh, and not to include it in the struggle uh, is not only to lose an important ally, but uh, I think. Uh, it is to create a situation where solidarity is impossible. Now, ultimately, uh, this is where it's all headed. Uh, I mean, the reason we're talking about intersectionality is, is uh, to, to rethink how we produce solidarity. Uh, there's solidarity on the right. Uh, that's usually working via identity, right? Uh, you have white supremacy, uh, there's race, uh, there's nationalism, uh, you know, patriarchy uh, to some degree as well. Uh, these are ways of building solidarity in a conservative right-wing fashion. And if you think about what it's doing, uh, it's actually fooling most of the people that enter into this solidarity. I, I now talk about it as unite and conquer. Uh, take white supremacy as an example. Uh, white supremacy is uniting white people, uh, bringing white people into the belief that they have more in common with the white bosses because of their skin color than with the black workers. Uh, and of course, by doing that, it's uniting and conquering black people, uh, but it's also uniting, uh, it's also conquering the white working class by uniting them uh, with the false interests. So why do Americans always vote against their own interests? Well, uh, here's one reason, right? Uh, racism here is something that hurts uh, a lot more people uh, and, and um, you know, exploits, allows for the exploitation of a lot more people than we realize. This is part of that super exploitation. But of course, it's not just that. It's also uh, the whole question of sexuality and gender that, that goes into it. I want to read you uh, one sentence here. Uh, this is... Um, attributed to Che Guevara. I'm, I'm not sure he said it, but uh, it, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, and it's important here to say it tonight. Uh, quote is this, when the American left is asked to form a firing squad, it gets into a circle. Uh, it's this circular firing squad. I'm, I'm sure you've all uh, heard about this, but uh, that's the problem. You know, how do you build solidarity that's different from this identitarian solidarity on the right? Uh, in in order to do it, you, you need to develop uh, some some notions of um, intersectionality. Um, solidarity, what I'm calling deep solidarity, uh, is ultimately this understanding that we may have something in common um, that goes beyond identities. Uh, but once you realize it, uh, it's a way of uh, bringing together, uh, not maybe together, but uh, working together of the various identities in order to make a difference. In other words, uh, deep solidarity, realizing uh, that we are the 99% or maybe uh, we are uh, those people that have to work for a living, uh, brings us together in a way uh, that doesn't require sameness and identification, but that now actually allows, this is the point, that now actually allows the various identities to bring 
to that struggle, uh, their own strengths, their own insights. Uh, this is also my way of looking at interreligious solidarity, by the way, uh, not to look for identity of the religions or what all we share in common, but what is it that the various religious traditions can bring to the struggle for liberation, can bring uh, to addressing and overcoming our problems in the Capitalocene. And in so doing, uh, you don't have to be identical. You don't have to believe the same thing. You might actually believe different things. You could learn from each other. You could learn more about yourself too. Uh, but what ultimately matters is not sameness and identity, but a common movement. Uh, and, and I think this is uh, back to this metabolism. <laughs> on the one hand, uh, it's, it's a problematic term, but on the other hand, uh, maybe there's something that's also positive that's created out of it uh, as these various things work together. Um, and maybe one more practical example, um, so I'm, I'm directing this Wendland Cook program in religion and justice at Vanderbilt University. And what we're finding is that the labor connections for us, of course, that includes the unions, it includes what we would think of as alt labor. It also uh, especially includes worker cooperatives, uh, that those are the places where you can struggle uh, for all kinds of liberations. I mean, uh, you want to fight racism here in the South. Um, organizing a minority neighborhood to build economic power, uh, to live up, uh, to move towards economic democracy uh, is a way of fighting racism that's immensely powerful, uh, very productive, has a very long history. Jessica Gordon Empart told it in her book, Collective Courage, African-American uh, communities working together, uh, building not only community wealth, but also community power. You wanna fight racism, this is one way to do it, right? You wanna fight sexism, well, uh, guess what it would do to actually actually uh, work together uh, along those lines to, to overcome some of, some of these uh, forms of oppression and exploitation. So, so that's part of the work that we're doing. Uh, we're always looking for collaborators. So if any of you are interested in um, joining uh, some of this work, uh, we're now these days doing solidarity circles that bring together faith communities and uh, expressions, uh, specific examples of the solidarity economy, because we believe uh, this is not only the way to build the solidarity economy, but ultimately also uh, this is the way to reclaim, transform, revolutionize, if you will, religion. I mean, Jorga, if I may ask, if we take the framework of the capital of scene seriously, it is an account not just of the origins of the crisis, but also of today's unfolding in my view, epical crisis of capitalism. What are the, you, you come right up to this and at the end of, of uh, uh, this wonderful discussion that concludes the book on intersectionality and deep solidarity. There's a theological moment, a sp certainly a broader spiritual moment of a revolutionary vision for socialism in an era of climate crisis. Does the, how does the climate crisis broadly conceive and enter into this discussion of maybe the reimagining of a deep solidarity. So one thing we, we've been saying is what exploits people is what exploits the planet. Uh, very simple statement, right? <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, for a lot of people, this is the beginning of an understanding of, oh, uh, what's going on here is actually exploitation. And, you know, a lot of people are confused. They think the problem is oppression. Uh, well, of course, oppression is a problem, but why would you oppress somebody? I mean, it's it's not that much fun to, I mean, maybe you get some self-affirmation and whatnot out of oppressing other people, uh, but it's also a lot of work and it's tiresome. And, uh, you know, if you think about slavery as oppression, uh, you're not quite getting to the bottom of it. Uh, if you think about it as exploitation, 
that needs oppression, right? So oppression is an essential part of it. Uh, but the goal here is really, you know, producing benefits for certain people on the backs of others. Uh, that That's the key. Uh, now, once you start thinking about the eco ecological piece like that, I think a lot of a lot of things fall into place. And what I find, especially in religious communities, there's a lot of ecological concern. I mean, ecological concern in faith communities is much easier to preach than class struggle or labor or any of this stuff. So once you talk about ecology, people feel sorry for the animals. You know, people have sort of a, a soft spot uh, if, if something bad happens, you know, uh, to uh, species and so on. Um, but bring this back into the conversation and say, this is not an accident. This is not just something that happens. These are the same forces. Uh, you know, uh, Sidney Alstrom at one point uh, wrote, uh, the forces that uh, that uh, drove Luther to the Wittenberg church door were the same forces that drove Columbus's caravels across the Atlantic Sea. I said, oh, what? There, there's these connections. So, so uh, start somewhere, uh, look at the connection. So, so to me, that's sort of the pedagogical thing here. Uh, and then um, maybe uh, one autobiographical point, uh, the funny name and the funny accent are German, right? Jörg Rieger uh, is how I was raised, Jörg Rieger. Uh, and uh, um, I, I basically got, got my early uh, radicalization uh, in the environmental movement, uh, except that when I came to the US, I, I dropped all that stuff because it looked to be so irredeemably middle-class, you know, for people that have <laughs> concern about the finer things of life, uh, instead of uh, these, these really on-the-ground grassroots mm -hmm. struggles that we're talking about. And so for me, reclaiming that is really very, very important in it all. Hopefully we can have more conversations, but I've thoroughly enjoyed this. And thanks to Maxine, uh, thanks to Ralph. Uh, and there were several other people uh, behind the scenes uh, who made this possible. So so thanks, everybody. Thank you, Jorg, Philippe, Jason. It really did feel constructive. That, that word feels uh, valuable. It was a very constructive night, for me at least. Um, and based on, on the comments, definitely for um, all the listeners as well. Thank you all again. And uh, peace and solidarity to you all. This has been an episode of Heart of a Heartless World. Get connected and learn more by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or check out our website, religioussocialism.org. I mean, wow. I feel like I got through, so this was a good moment. <laughs>